0: All right, so I have a question for you tonight. And you're going to be tempted to answer it right away. And I'm going to ask you to not answer it right away. Because I'm using a metaphorical expression, not a very specific expression. Are we Big Bang Believers? (laughs) Oh, you can't say anything. You can't say anything. So... Some Christians like to, in a cheeky way, answer to the Big Bang. Of course we believe in the Big Bang. God said, and there was. And okay, yeah. Um, some Christians are like, no, not at all. The, the Genesis is very clear there's no Big Bang. So this is why I don't want you to answer this question, because that's not actually what we're looking at. When I say Big Bang believer, I mean that there is a mindset in our culture that we adopt or don't that is like the Big Bang. We like to see big things that bring banging results right away. We want instantaneous, there it is. This is what we're masking is, are we big bang believers or do we, do we want to see immediate impact? Yes, who doesn't? Um, But do we subscribe to this as a philosophy of life, immediate impact, or do we believe in patient process? Yes, but we don't like it. <laughs> so do you actually believe it if you don't do it, right? Um, so I'm going to use a sports analogy, which some people don't care about. You just got to go with it. You have to, I have to share from my own life, not from some book I read. So <laughs> um, when I look at sports, I like sports. I grew up with baseball, and um, I really enjoy soccer, which the rest of the world calls football. Um These, In following certain teams in both these sports, I learned something about, and you see this in culture elsewhere, but I see it it particularly in sports, is that there are some clubs that run their organization with a big bang belief. They want to make a splash. They want to get fans happy. They will throw what they need to do to make that happen now. Some clubs are under tons of scrutiny, tons of pressure. They are literally controlled by media and fans, and they serve to please. So they will throw out the big bucks to make that flashy player everybody knows or appreciates and says, if only they played for us, they'll do whatever it takes, break the bank, bring that player over, and everyone's all happy for a while, but it doesn't actually fix the problems the organization needs to address. So an example of this is my childhood team, the so-called Los Angeles Angels who play in Anaheim. Um, they are, have been on a terrible run the last decade because they are under all kinds of pressure. They have two of the best players, not only in history, but in the world. Like and they feel this pressure, we have to win now. So what they've done is they have broken their organization trying to do Big Bang philosophy trying to make it all happen this year. And year after year, you do this, you you're no longer have a process anymore. You don't have an identity. You're just always trying to please people and make a splash, and it doesn't amount to anything. Um, you contrast that with um, other organizations, and there's, quite, there's a lot that do the Big Bang philosophy. But then there's other quieter clubs that believe in a process. They have a philosophy and they will stick to this philosophy and its process no matter what. Even when demands and fans say otherwise, They're like, no, no, we know this process works. You have to trust us and you have to wait. And so an example of this would be uh, Liverpool in England, uh, one of the soccer teams in England. Um they believed so much in their process that they, they once had an opportunity to bring a star-studded player to their team. They did. But he came from a very different style of soccer. And they knew it would take him months, if not a whole year, maybe even two, to learn to play English style of soccer. And so they bring him over and everyone's, he's struggling. Everyone's saying he's not up for this league. He's no good. They wasted all these millions of dollars to bring him. But Liverpool understood, no, we know this is a two-year process and we're sticking with it. And they kept putting faith in this player and building him up. And sure enough, he became uh, one of the best players in the league. I admire that because that is trusting a process and that's patience. That's not succumbing to the need for an immediate impact. Um, And the the examples can abound. Um, I talked about Brentford a little bit ago one week, and so I'll mention it again. Brentford's the same style. They believe in a process, and they've grown from sub-leagues up to the highest league in the world. I'm saying all this because we see a temptation in all of us to try to succumb and give our allegiance to a Big Bang philosophy, a Big Bang belief, When the scriptures have given us actually instead a process, and this is what we must continually challenge ourselves to do, is to submit ourselves to God's process of growth, God's process of sanctification. I'm saying this because it's sad to me that we have forgotten to teach this to our youth and even our adults. All the time you talk to people who are struggling with this and you know what they need. You see so clearly the path they must go on but when you give them advice and try to help them down the path, they immediately give up because it didn't work. Of course it didn't work. It's only been a week. This is a process and it may take us two, three, four years to grow out of something we're wrestling with. We must prevent and resist the temptation to think, but this book says I will be fixed in a month if I follow these formulas. Yeah, yeah, that person's getting money on this. Of course they say all this. God has given his people processes to be patient with. And those, um, some of you understand this. I know this because I've been with you for a long time and I can see the growth in you we're definitely not a big bang church. I'm not that person, at least. You guys can go and decide to fire me and hire a big profile person. You'd change everything overnight, right? It would. But the question we're asking is, is that long-term good? What, what governs our decisions? So all of that to say that if we devote ourselves to the right process, as a community, as a family, as individuals seeking growth. All of it's the same process, by the way. So we're talking communally and individually. If we devote ourselves to the right process, we become more than the sum of our parts. We become more than the sum of our parts. So to conclude the sport analogy here, good teams are more than the sum of their parts. Many have seen the movie Miracle, when the U.S. Olympic hockey team, a bunch of amateurs and college kids beat the professional uh, Russians, which was the USSR then, right? Um, I love that movie, because there you see a group of people who man to man do not measure up to this Russian team. But because they learn through a process to become more than the sum of their parts. And so there are... Um, teams that I really appreciate that look like this. They're those that, yeah, they buy all the best people and they win every now and then, but then they're the the underdogs because they don't have big bang philosophy, but they're actually dangerous because they're more than some of their parts. Something about their working together and their process makes them more than their individual talents. Do you see what I'm saying? What is the church supposed to look like? It's supposed to look like individuals who shed their individuality to become a community that becomes through a process of discipline and spiritual practices more than the sum of its parts. <clears throat> Paul says in 1 Corinthians, who are we? We're, oh, I'll modernize the language, we are losers, we are the scum of the earth, we are the rejects, we are the B team, we are the JV squad. And yet look what's happening around the world. Christianity has never gone away. So the question for us is, what does it look like to follow a process? That's what I want to go through. And then I want to, in the, in the process, dismantle the myth of the Big Bang Church. So let's read a couple passages, and then I will Guide us through this. So in Acts chapter 2, these are very familiar. If any of you guys are familiar with scripture, you probably know these very well. Acts 2 verse 42. This is right after the Spirit comes upon the apostles and Peter preaches. We read 2.42. They, this is all the apostles and those who have now believed in Jesus, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs are being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need and day by day Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And another often used summary of what's happening is chapter 4, verse 32. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as they had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means the son of encouragement, a Levite, that means he was a priest or a part of the clan, at least that worked in the tabernacle or the temple, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And so Barnabas becomes that sort of flag child of how the Christians were living. It's beautiful, isn't it? You see, you see a few things. They're devoted to certain practices. We see them sharing in both passages. They're sharing all things in common. No one has need. They're together all the time. And then we see that they're in the temple. Day by day, they're in the temple and they're in the homes breaking bread. And the Lord's adding to their number those who are being saved. We look at this, and I don't know if I'm just the oddball in the room, but the way, whether or not it was explicitly taught this way to me, I don't know, or if it's the way I sort of just digested it. I was always under the presumption that the early church just happened. That these dumb disciples... Couldn't get it right when Jesus was on earth. Then the Holy... There's some degree to that. (laughs) True to that. And then the Holy Spirit comes down. And out of nowhere, this amazing thing begins to happen. Out of nowhere. And it's this big bang idea. Like the church just... Boom! There it is. Pentecost. Now, thank you, bud. Um, Um, And so then sometimes people explicitly say this and sometimes it's more implied then there are these images that are created of just this like unorganized yet powerfully and insanely driven spirit-filled people who are just kind of on the fly figuring things out so i hear a lot of talk about the the romantic living room church and how it has been corrupted since then and we just got to get back to the living room and and that the, they didn't know what they were doing; they just kind of spontaneously just let things happen. Okay, but that's not how God works in the Bible, and I'm going to suggest very strongly that it's not how He worked in Acts either. It's 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 an it's a romantic idea, but it's not a realistic idea. If you think about it, nowhere in the Bible do we see this. Let's, let's go back maybe more, little, more literally to the Big Bang idea. There is no Big Bang in the Bible. In Genesis 1, we see seven days of creation. Now that says process to me more than anything else. Amen. Could God have said, boom, and it's all there? Absolutely. <laughs> but you will notice throughout the Bible... That this seven-week period, this process, this week process that God created the world in becomes a pattern for life for God's people throughout. So the process of creation becomes a process for life. For example, if you don't know what I mean, Uh, The Sabbath is the day that God rested and the Sabbath was the day that God's people were called to bring their work to him. They stop their work and they bring the proceeds of it to him and say, thank you. You made all this possible for us. That was the idea of the Sabbath. Um, And that's what Adam and Eve would have done. That's what Israel was given to do. That's what the church, I'll show you in a moment, that's what the church, the very earliest church was doing. There was a process. Um, Pentecost, Two, Pentecost can on the surface look like the spirit came in. Big bang. There's a church. But actually, if you study Matthew, as we are, and we'll eventually get to these passages. Matthew shows Christ preparing the disciples to lead the church. There was a process. And this process goes before Jesus calling his 12. This process goes to the Jewish worship cycles in the temple, and even before that in the tabernacle. There was a process. The early church didn't just appear. It was being built from early, 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 early on. Now, you need to understand that I don't see distinctions between God's people in the Bible. God's people are God's people, whether they're Jewish or whether they're Gentile, and that he has been doing this since, uh, of course, Adam, fell, but then he's rebuilding up his people through Abraham, and then included to these people of Abraham are people Scottish people like me and, British, <laughs> uh, yeah, whatever you guys are, we got some British, <laughs> multiple British in the house. Um, um, More Irish, yeah, I'm part Irish too. So, uh, but these are all God's people. Um, so, okay. So, but this is what we see. Okay. So, uh, I find this very helpful. And this is how Matthew in the new Testament is much longer study. If you want to go into it, but this is how the Bible seems to portray it. This is what God's people are. God's, I'm sorry. God's people are a seed. Because after we fell and disobeyed God, he said that the seed of the woman would crush the seed of the serpent. And now, some newer translations, the ESV included, translate seed to descendants. Terrible, terrible. I get it. We don't use the word seed. We use the word descendant. But the word seed, the metaphor seed, is super important in scripture. And when you call it descendant, you ruin the whole picture. The Old Testament is about two things. You can summarize the whole Testament in seed and land. Why is that important? Because when seed meets land, you get... Well, exactly. Okay, so that god 's people are a seed, and he he recasts the seed in Abraham, so Abraham grows roots, uh, Isaac and Jacob, and the twelve sons of Jacob, who become the twelve tribes of Israel, right These are the patriarchs who who the seed begins to grow roots there 's no fruit yet, and oh my goodness, they do have some mistakes and it 's rough reading Genesis. I happen to teach Genesis and Matthew at the Bible college, so I, you know. Um, It's there's no fruit yet. There's process going on here, and then and then. By the way, here's the ground, and then you get some growth. You know, like the people are growing. Seventy of them end up in Egypt, and then they're enslaved, and then there needs to be this rescue, this exodus, and so they're brought out. And still, there's not much going on. Israel's like this. Like, I mean, they can be mastered by a pharaoh and tell them what to do. Like, they're weak Right, they're weak. They're growing up. The children of Israel is a common phrase early on in the Old Testament, but then they're brought to their land, and when they're brought to their land, we have a shoot, and now they begin to flourish. Right, and they begin to grow, and of course, there's setbacks. Right, but they begin to grow and grow. And this, this section, this growth is when, when God calls David to become the king of his people. So now the seed has a shepherd and so it's growing and growing and growing. And then I'm going to skip the whole exile part because it's just more complicated, but it keeps growing. And eventually, what do you expect from a seed? Do you expect a branch? Fruit. You expect fruit. Fruit. The reason you plant a seed is for its fruit. I put an apple seed in the ground, not to see a tree, but to see apples on the tree, right? So Matthew begins with seed. You remember this back in Advent, we looked at the genealogy of Matthew, the seedlings of the Messiah. And so Matthew starts like that to say, look, this seed has flowered in Jesus Christ, And now we continue to bear fruit. This is the story of God's people. Jesus is and his people, his followers, the church, are the point of Abraham's seed. This is what he intended all along. It's not that Israel wasn't good enough, so God went to plan B and made the church. It's not that Israel is like, okay, let's just cut Israel down and we'll start the church on its own over here not at all. He always had in mind a people around his son. This was the point from Abraham. It's a continuity. It is the fruition. Okay. So our early Christians knew this, and this is how Acts seems to be portraying what the people of God are, that there's this continuity. Um, so what they had to wrestle with is, okay, what is this continuity? Um, because on one hand, we are Jews. The apostles were Jews. But on the other hand, something new is happening. The Messiah has come. Uh, The Jews crucified him. Gentiles are down the road from a little later in Acts. Gentiles are coming into the church. What what is this? Uh, So they were asking these questions too. But They saw themselves, they did not see themselves as a new religion over here. Actually, that's what Judaism did. Judaism saw the church and Christ and said, Oh no, we are going to plant our own little flower right here. That's what Judaism did. And so actually, you can see in synagogue evidence that the early prayers of the synagogue after the church and Judaism split, this is about the time of persecution, they began to split, uh, the synagogue added prayers that seemed very intentionally aimed at Christians. There was an incredible distinction, and they decided to have their own religion. Not that they made a new one, but they just stuck to their tradition without following. They just stuck to the stem. They didn't follow the fruition of Christ. Okay. So, um, okay. So this is important to see what the apostles thought of themselves and thought of the church. So I think we, from 2000 years later, often just assume, oh yeah, there's these two different things and Christ came to end one and start another. No, he came to fulfill what was begun at the beginning. Many just decided to jump off to sever themselves from the branch. Okay. So Um, how does the early church, we see here in this passage, uh, these passages, uh, a lot of like, they have things in common. They're together. It's so foreign to our American way. They go from a bunch of individuals to something more than a collection of individuals. The church is more than a collection of individuals. A church is more than the sum of its parts. Something bigger happens when the individuals become a community. Okay, so how are some of the ways they did this? Um, We'll just look at three, which seem to be quite, one, less evident, but two, very evident from the text. First is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit brings individuals into a collective. The Holy Spirit came down on Pentecost, and we saw people begin to change. So, uh, Ephesians, I forgot to write it down, but I know it's Ephesians chapter four, uh, says, oh, come on, um, Ephesians four, verse two, no, verse three, Ephesians four, verse three, Paul says, be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Um, So we see one of the things the Bible tells us is that unity comes through the spirit. It's the spirit who connects individuals into something more than just two individuals or three or five or 15 or 100. Um, The spirit, the spirit was hovering over the waters at creation. The spirit brought the process of seven days. The spirit was upon Mary who conceived the new creation in her womb, Jesus Christ The spirit came upon the apostles at Pentecost who began to proclaim and souls are being added to the church. The Holy Spirit is the initiator. The Holy Spirit is the one who links people together. So that's one thing we see is that they were driven by the Holy Spirit. We must be driven by the Holy Spirit, not the spirit of the age, God's Holy Spirit. Not the spirit of whatever's trendy or popular, or here's one of the things that drives me nuts, and I haven't said it in a while, but if you've been around for a while, you've heard me say it many times in the past. The spirit of corporate America has to stop driving the church. By the way, that's Big Bang philosophy. Corporations have to answer to their investors quarterly, right? I'm not a businessman. I have something like that. Um, yeah, they need results now. Does the church need that? Are we answering to investors? <laughs> oh, heaven help us if we are. Um, the Holy Spirit. So that's first. Second, we see that um, devotion. They devoted themselves to practices. It doesn't say anything about innovation. I want you to note that. There's no, they, they figured out how to do things. It's, there's devotion to set practices in 2 verse 42. They devoted themselves. Don't miss that word devoted. It's not that they did these things and they felt like it, or they occasionally did these things. What was their primary, what do I say other than devotion? What did they pursue? This is their goal. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship. The breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, that word the, which is in the ESV translation, um, that is in the Greek. Each of these four practices are specific practices. The apostles' teachings. This means that the way the apostles interpreted scripture, they devoted themselves to their interpretation. They didn't see every man as their own island interpreting everything as they want. They saw that Christ empowered the apostles to teach, and they taught the apostles' teaching. So this is, this is community. This isn't, well, I don't like what you say about that. Um, of course, now, that's not to say don't use your discernment on teachers because there's a lot of people saying what they want to say. But this is where we have to say, okay, are we looking at the scriptures in a faithful way to the way God's people have looked at the scriptures? Or are we latching on to something new and trendy? Like that's those, those are some of the things we have to ask do our homework and study but also part of the study your study can be biased that's why it's good to balance our interpretations with what has God's people said over time and that's one of the things I've devoted myself to is giving you guys the scriptures not just as I see it but trying to show you how people in the past seen it and Sometimes we do challenge modern assertions. Sometimes we adopt modern assertions. Sometimes the past didn't get it right. But, but we can't look at one sliver of history. We have to look at the whole. Slivers of history get things wrong. But if, if, if the church has always seen that communion is important, then what should we see? Communion is important. If parts of the church, like the Middle Ages, said that there's transubstantiation in communion, do we adopt one little sliver of history? No. How has the church as a whole seen communion? And you can listen to all that on the last series we did, so I'm not going to go into that. But um, that's the apostles' teaching. For for them, that's super, like, in their neighborhood, right? So it's right there. Uh, They devoted themselves to properly interpreting God's word. Um, Also, the fellowship. The fellowship isn't just let's have barbecue and hang out and watch the Super Bowl. Uh, The fellowship means there's an intentional interchange of life together. So, the fellowship, there's something very, there is a set fellowship, and they are, they're devoting themselves to it. So, hangout's great, but this is not just hangout. Uh, Third, they devote themselves to the breaking of bread. The breaking of bread, since the is prominent in all of these, we have to see this not just as breaking bread. We use that often to say, let's eat together, let's break bread together. The breaking of the bread would have been the breaking of the meal they celebrated. For Christ, known as for us, the Lord's Supper or communion. Um, and the prayers, the prayers. So no, they actually didn't. They were Jews. They didn't spontaneously pray all the time. Of course they spontaneously prayed, but they had the prayers. The Jewish synagogue and temple prayers were their prayers. I can tell you for sure one other prayer they had. Do you know what it is? Exactly. The, G, the, the prayer Jesus taught them. The prayers means there were pre-existent prayers and they devoted themselves to these prayers. Now, um, so they have the Holy Spirit and they had devotion to a way of life. That leads us third to the last um, continuity. Continuity. They, they had continuity. And that's where I want to get, I actually put this up a little too early, I didn't mean to, but it kind of flowed with what I was saying. So there you go. Uh, continuity. They saw themselves as part of a long chain of forefathers and foremothers. And they didn't seek to cut themselves off from that. They kept growing off of it and from it. And so this continuity though is challenging, right? Because there's the old week, of the old testament and then there's the new week the new seven day process of the new testament and so like on one there's this tension right It's like christ came and made things new but he also didn't command that we abandon the old so what they did is they did what you and i would have done if we were them they continued practicing what we now call judaism with christ at the center of it well what did judaism look like then that's what's really interesting. You'll notice in chapter 2, verse 46. In 2, verse 46, we saw this day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. Don't miss this subtle but important distinction. And church history documents this as actually what happened. Oh, imagine that if it backs up scripture. But I mean, like, they continued this pattern beyond Acts is that they met in the temple and in homes. Why did they do that? Because the early Christians never saw the synagogue as a waste or the temple as a waste. They just saw that this now has found its answer in Christ. Not that Christ has made this unnecessary, but it's found its answer. So we know that... um, the synagogues were seen. They were There were little places, if you didn't live in Jerusalem, where you could gather for worship on the Sabbath. And the synagogue was seen as an extension of the temple. Synagogues were aimed to face toward Jerusalem. They had little boxes which mimicked the Ark of the Covenant. They were kept behind a veil. They brought the scroll of the Torah out from that to read. They saw the synagogues as little temples, just without sacrifices, because they can't do that without the priesthood. Um, what we know about synagogues at Jesus's time. So Jesus would have been part of this. And by the way, Luke's first appearance of Jesus speaking in public is him talking in a synagogue. Okay, so what they did at synagogues is synagogues actually had a liturgy. They opened up with antiphons, which is where you have, uh, we would use the phrase call and response. Um, but antiphons more technically refer to a singing call and response, Um, something which, you know, we are very far removed from. It's not known for us to be singing a whole lot other than someone playing on the guitar, but what it would be is psalms. Um, Sometimes it's a leader says a part and then the people sing the next part. Sometimes it's two halves sing to each other. They sing one line and then they sing the next line. That's how the synagogue opened was with these sung verses Then it went to the Shema, the Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord God with your heart soul. That was as close to a thing as a creed that Judaism had. And they confessed this verse every single week, which followed a reflection on their sins and a a reflection on the goodness and faithfulness of God. So after that, they then went into what's called the benedictions or the eulogies. Um, They're often interchanged. It just means praise. And there were... There are 19 of these prayers that they still say today, but back at Jesus's time, there was only six of them, and they said these same six prayers, and um, what they did is in the first three, the leader would pray these, these blessing prayers, and then there would be a pause for the people to pray spontaneously, and then they would end with that prayer time with the next three set of praise prayers. And then a reader would come up. Sometimes this is very elaborate. Sometimes they had seven readers because there were seven sections of the Torah to read. But nonetheless, they had readers come up and they would read from the Torah and then they would read from the law. And in some places, they broke these readings up into three-year cycles. Some they broke it off into one year. Some they had it in three and a half years. That wasn't always set. But they, they, they systematically went through all of the Torah and the prophets. And then after the reading, someone would then give a lesson, a sermon, a teaching from what was read. Uh, Then they concluded with, the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you, as we have for so many years. Uh, That's what the synagogue looked like. It was an interactive, full community worship. Jesus was raised in this. The disciples were raised in this. So when your master is crucified, raised from the dead, ascended to heaven, sends his Holy Spirit upon you, they continue this. Only now, their hearts have flowered with the whole point of it all. So why do they go, in Jerusalem they go to the temple. Outside of Jerusalem they would have gone to the synagogue. Why are they going to the temple and synagogue day by day? They saw no point in breaking off from this. Then, the problem with the synagogue and temple was, where is Christ in it? There's no celebration of Christ. So what they did is after their worship, their liturgical worship service, they would then go to their homes and there they would break the bread. And, and when they did that, it wasn't the way mo- it's been modernized with a little piece of bread and a little cup for you to drink. It was known as the agape feast. They would gather in their home, And that was the agape feast. They had prayers they opened with. There was a little bit of a system to it, but it was mostly as they ate the food, this was communion. They saw Christ present in their eating together with them. So that's where they did their most unique Christian part. Now, this two-stage set of worship, synagogue in the morning and then breaking bread uh, uh, that evening, if you know Jewish culture, Saturday night is Sunday. So they did communion on Sunday. Um, This two-part structure changed when Judaism finally kicked Christians out of the synagogue. Why did they kick Christians out of the synagogue? Well, because when persecution came, the Jews were like, Whoa, whoa, no, we don't claim any Messiah. That's not us. And to alleviate persecution from themselves, they kicked the Christians out, making them completely abandoned and distinct. So when the Christians no longer had access to the temple, or you even see Paul by the end of Acts is going to have access into the temple. By this time, then what did they do? They just bring synagogue liturgy to their agape feast. And now you have what has been a 2,000-year, uh, if you look at general structures to liturgy, that's what they are. They follow very closely to the synagogue, and they have communion Uh communion. It's been reduced from a feast to what's more economical, but we feast anyway, so we do that too. Um, that, okay, so why do, I, why do I say all this? I say all this because early on, even in Acts, what happens here was not an accident. It's not like, boom, here's the Holy Spirit, and now all of a sudden, whoa, what's. Like, yes, there was an element of now there's divine assistance in what they're doing. But they didn't abandon the old ways. They kept on worshipping the way they always had worshipped. And there was a structure that they devoted themselves to. They didn't have to sit around and go, how do we pray now? They had been praying. And they knew what set prayers looked like. And they knew what spontaneous prayers looked like. And they devoted themselves to becoming good at praying. They knew from Christ that Passover is an annual thing once for us, but he instituted this for us on a more regular basis as his presence among us, so we will devote ourselves to eating together. They devoted, see how this goes, they devoted themselves to, why the apostles' teaching? Because the synagogue teaching taught the Torah and the prophets without Christ. The apostles taught the Torah and the prophets with Christ. And William has challenged me, which I may accept, um, to teach... Uh, The passages Jesus quotes, the Old Testament passages he quotes, to teach those books um, with a gospel lens. So that would mostly be Isaiah and Psalms and Deuteronomy, and there's probably a fourth, but that's what the apostles were doing. So this is why they devoted themselves to these things. They didn't see any breaking off from that. Why? Because Judaism was a very, in religious terms, a very successful religion. Uh, People trying to stamp out the Jews, losing their kingdom, and it not only continued, but it flourished. So the church said, okay, we will continue in this way, but have Christ fulfill all of it. Um, I'm sorry, this is going long. I had a feeling this would happen. But we're coming to the third and final part. Um, I say all this because... um, You guys have been on a journey with me in which I have gently brought liturgical forms to this church. Some people hate that. Um, And I understand that. I truly do. Because they associate that with Catholicism. But I went through the pain to show you that the Catholic Church did not invent liturgy. They might have debased it. That might be your personal opinion. It is sort of my opinion too. I think the medieval times are very hard on the church and they haven't quite come out of those dark ages. But yeah, it's another thing. Um, liturgy is scriptural. Liturgy is what Christ grew up practicing and the disciples continued doing. And you can see from the earliest records, from okay, Ignatius of Antioch was um, the, the bishop of the city Antioch, which is where the Christians, they were first called Christians, He was a direct. He was he was um, ordained by Peter himself, and we see in Ignatius's writings their views on worship, and it's very liturgical. So either the first generation broke away from the apostles, or they did what the apostles taught them to. I mean, that's up to your decision, right? Um, So I yeah, are we a high church? I am like you. I've just been ordained to, foolishly been ordained to lead this rag rat, rugrat, ragamuffin, I'm trying to say all kinds of words, rag tag, all of them. Yeah, you guys are those. We're all those together. Um, and here's my heart behind this. Um, there's another. Um, my father and. Running, and the Holy Spirit moved me to come in and sit in. And I just want kind to of let you know that I think the faith is very, very proud of you. And your Bible study is very, very interesting. And I've been moved by it. I'm caught off guard. Me. <laughs> <laughs> um, no one's ever said that in the middle of a sermon. <laughs> it's funny. He's done! Hallelujah! Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <I will> <laughs> Oh, we're not high church, right? I, I do think yeah yeah let's that, not go into all this. Um, we're not traditional. I've heard both of those comments from people who have visited and said I really like your church, and then they're like, but it's so different. It's uh, and so someone said it's very high church. I'm like, oh, you probably haven't been to a high church thing because not really. Not, and I get what you're saying, but no, I'm not even investments for crying out loud. The history of investments is really interesting. It's not original, by the way. So. Um, <laughs> Uh, and then another one said very traditional. Traditional is a good word in one sense and a bad word in another sense. And I think you understand that. Um, I like the word faithful. We're trying to be a faithful church. Faithful to a, uh, maybe the true heartbeat of Christianity. That's what I'm trying to do. Uh, so just to, you know, dispel all these things. Like No, I did not cl- it have a closet conversion to Catholicism, and I'm secretly leading you down this road. Um, nor, hey, and also, um, nor am I trying to beat over your head that your prayer life should be repetitive and rote. Now, mine is a little bit, but it's also very intermingled with seasonal and spontaneous prayer. Um, so I've tried to delicately have some rote, parts of our service but some that change all the time um look the early church did that too christ taught a rote prayer um these things are actually good and this is where we're going back to process big bang ideas want everything to have impact Ooh, that was new or that was exciting or when really it seems to me in the bible god's into repetitive patterns to train us mm-hmm. Because it takes a lot to get into. Look at Psalm 119, for example. That's you, and I will be. You're forced to for the next few weeks. Um, it is 176 verses of the same sentence. reaches re- just repeated in 170-something ways. Do you get, what, you get what the Bible's about? Do you, you notice when you read Genesis 1, it is the exact same formula every day? Day number this. God said this. It was so the. Uh, it was morning and it was evening and morning. The number day. Like it's a very it's a very much a rote pattern. Um, you go through this whole. Anyways, I don't need to go through all this. That's a whole other thing. But um, what my here's the piece I think that is missing that I really need us to hear. If we want to become a people who are more than the sum of our parts. Having a a loosely liturgical service is good. I think it's made us less individuals and more community. But that's not enough. Um, because some people come in and they're like, oh man, this is... It's just like it's like it's so predictable. Not that things weren't predictable before. Six uh, as we gather, six songs, a teaching, communion, and the benediction. Like it was it, Pastor Chuck's uh, services. If you guys ever went to actual big Calvary and Pastor, Chuck, that was predictable too. What they mean is it's just a more complex predictability. That's all. That's the only difference. Um, where was I going at this though? Um, oh, yes, that's good to make us less of a collection of individuals and actually doing something together um what liturgy means is the work of the people and you might remember about a year ago i did a message on the other worship word of the day was orgy and that's where people did whatever felt good it would lit- you can see the connotations right um that was actually the pagan worship word the church chose the word liturgy because it was a communal word which means the community coming together to build something for the community That's what a liturgy is. It's the work of the people. What is it? It's we come together, we work together to give Christ our praise and thanksgiving and ourselves. We do that together. When you come, you are part of that. You're a participant. So, no, the participants aren't the people singing or the people teaching. The participants are us and what we bring and the chances we have of spontaneous prayer in the midst of this too. Something high church would never do, by the way. Um so that's that's what liturgy is it's about coming together to do something together now that's not enough though this is the part sorry I'm kinda yeah this is the part that we need connecting to is we don't just do liturgy we live liturgy so this is where it has to be part of your life um sunday is just a weekly part of your liturgy so if you look at Christianity, you have an annual liturgy. Judaism had this too, and God commanded this. Every year, they did the Passover, Pentecost, the Feast of Booths, and some other ones, right? Every week, they did the Sabbath. There are specific sacrifices for each of these. Okay, so God commanded those things. The The church has its own seven seasons. We start with Advent. We go to, uh, yeah, Epiphany. We then go to Lent. We have Holy Week. We have Easter. We have Pentecost. I missed one, but they're they're there. Um, We have an annual liturgy. How does that affect my life? It may not, to a huge degree, but think of this. What was last weekend? Thank you. It was Pentecost. Uh, Let's ask this non-Christian wise. What does the rest of the world say last weekend was? Memorial. Memorial Day. We all live by a liturgical calendar. The question is, who's the heart of your liturgy? So, Dr. Guy, thankfully, says last week was Pentecost. That's orienting your sense of time around Christ. So we know we're in the season of Pentecost. The church uses green because it means growth. It's where we seek the growth of the Spirit in our lives. So that's one example. You can annually live liturgically. Know what season you're in. We like to decorate our homes in the fall with orange and harvest themes. What if you knew, okay, it's Lent. Let me decorate my home with maybe more Christ-oriented things instead of Easter ones or Emma. <laughs> Even purple to remind yourself that this is a fasting season. And that's part of orienting yourselves liturgically around the year is this is a fasting season. And fasting doesn't mean you kill yourself. Uh, there's someone here who learned to stop drinking st- 20 cups of coffee a day I'm exaggerating a little bit just a little bit though 20 cups of coffee a day uh, because during Lent they decided I'm not going to drink coffee that's incredible Um, and then there's seasons of feasting right after Easter man just Christ is risen eat because God never said food back but we learn to limit and we learn to feast this is part of a liturgical life (laughs) annually Uh, weekly we have a liturgical life what do we do on Sundays? We worship together. Um, some people practice like a Sabbath on a Saturday or somewhere, right? They have their weekly rhythm. Uh, the early church and um, some of us, through my encouragement, I'm trying to encourage more of you. It's hard though. Uh, there's a there's a two fast day period in the church, Wednesdays and Fridays. Um, you can live weekly. I eat freely, but on two days, I'm going to choose to not eat as freely. Uh, those are week living liturg- liturgically weekly um, daily You guys, most of you guys here have this already Calvary Chapel has been excellent at teaching us a daily liturgy just not that language read your bible and pray everyday that's, that's your daily liturgy assuming you do that everyday um, but you should confess your sins everyday you should thank God everyday you should pray for others please me and our church, and, and Brittany, and our kids, and, and anyone else, but especially us, <laughs> um, every day, we have daily liturgies. And then, and then it breaks down even more, and it can break down, so you have hourly liturgies. The The hours have been prayed for 2,000 years. In fact, you don't believe me, look at chapter 3, verse 1. Uh, the The early church did hourly liturgies. Uh, Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. It's well known that the Jews had morning and evening sacrifice, which was the church did morning and evening prayer. But then they also had prayer hours and the church continued this third hour, uh, sixth hour and ninth hour. That corresponds to 9 a.m., 12 p.m. and 3 p.m. for us. Um, those are the hours and that there were certain prayers that the Jews apparently said there's certain prayers you can say basically the third hour thinks about Pentecost because it was the third hour and the Holy Spirit came down You, it, when you see it's 9am it's from there to noon every time you think of God pray for the Holy Spirit's presence in your life that's how you pray at the hours noon when did Christ die? in chapter 10 Peter is praying on the rooftop at the sixth hour that's noon uh, so Thank him for his. Ask him to cleanse your heart of sin, and when it's noon, and all the way till three. You know those three hours of the day. Just make that your heart's prayer. Uh, 3 p.m. The ninth hour, which is where we see Peter here, and also Cornelius is praying at the ninth hour. Acts didn't erase these things because in Acts, Luke realizes that the church was doing this too. So these things are left in there. Um, The ninth hour was when Christ died. Crucified at twelve, but died at 3 p.m. So what do we do? We pray for our own deaths. Or may I die well? May I keep my mind on what's important? And um, so then you pray that till dinner time. Like that's how you can live liturgically by the hour. You can section your days in these ways. Um, that's what we don't just do this together on Sunday. We live this. And so then another way we can do this is we add to the weekly liturgy, home groups, an intentional fellowship and gathering, which um, we are. I just need to iron out the starting date, but we're, it looks like Wednesdays, we'll start home groups. So if you want to set aside your Wednesdays and join those, that would be great. Um, so then you can have your temple and breaking bread in the home pattern too. Um, okay, so I have talked way long enough. Thank you for your patience. But this to me is important. Uh, it's one of those Sundays where it's like, we're looking at the early church, and we're measuring our church. How are we doing? And by the way, you may or may not call this your church. It's all right. Some people still call this the Sunday night Bible study. That's fine. And I get, even from people in our room have said we function more like a Bible study. I get that. I guess that's what I'm good at. I just teach the Bible and I don't know how to lead other things. But, like, it's (laughs) fine. Whatever you want to call this, we measure this gathering of Christians against Scripture. And I I just want to show you as my heart. That to me, the purpose of liturgy and why I encourage us to do those old school things like fasting and such, it's not that this is how we get righteous before God. Okay? We we do not abandon our Protestant roots of we're saved by God's grace through faith. That is foundational truth. But what we do is we want to live. It, here's the power: is when people are praying similar prayers together, like alone during the week, but we know. This church prays these prayers. The prayer to the Holy Spirit we started with. Heavenly King the Comforter. What if we all prayed that in the Lord's Prayer and we worked through the Psalms? And you know that everyone in this room is doing that every day. We already have the Bible reading bookmarks. I don't know how many of you guys have been keeping up with that. We all know that we're in Luke right now. Like, how like this is living liturgically and it's doing the work together even when we're alone. It's hey, it's Wednesday. I wanted to take Tyler out to coffee and donuts, but I also know that he's fasting on Wednesday, and a donut is off limits. So he will come over and we'll have carrots and hummus instead. <laughs> uh, that, see, you see what I'm saying, though? When a body of people adopts the liturgical lifestyle... Um, we actually become more than the sum of our parts because we're in this together. And it's the perfect world both to finish, again, finish for the second time, the sports analogy. A sports team is interested in two, two, two forms of training. You have to train the group to be a team. But you have to train individuals to get better at where they're not good enough. We have to train the individual I need my daily liturgies and hourly prayers. Like I, I need to grow, and as you grow too, then when we when we are together and we are in presence together, our growth coming together, it's all this process brings growth, and that's what I believe in. And I want you guys to say, okay, okay, I have more confidence in you, Pastor Brandon, and we will. Do what you say. No, don't do everything I say. (laughs) I don't, I'm not looking for that kind of authority over your life. But I'm just a conduit. Here's what scripture says, and then you guys know I sprinkle in a lot of like, this is what the church has always done too. Well, When I say that, it's like, oh, really? The church hasn't disappeared in 2,000 years. That's a miracle, brothers and sisters. Despite our mistakes, it's a miracle. So I want to know. I'm asking the same question of continuity that they're asking. I guess I'm going to try a lot more, of it. Um... How are we faithful to the old without just copying the old? We're not a slave to the old. It's continuity. How do we live in continuity with the church but do what our community in this mountain community needs and in this century? How does that look? How are we how are we in continuity but also looking at the new works of the Lord? We cannot keep our eye just on the past, but we cannot keep our eye just on the present, saying, where's the big bang? We must also keep our eye on the future and say, this is the Christianity we want to pass down because we're not passing it down very well if you look at the numbers. We need to live. Living is an awareness of past, present, and future. And that's that's the question that we wrestle with. Faithful to the past, aware of the present, but an eye on the future too. It's a process. Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. Both now and ever, and to ages of ages. Amen.